Well, welcome everybody. Uh, this weekend may not be abnormally significant to you, but it is to me. Uh, I want to welcome everybody, the fellows at RCMU, everyone east and west. But this is, and because I count this, I pay attention to this, uh, this marks the, uh, my ninth anniversary. Uh, nine years ago, uh, Katie and I and Hayden, our oldest, we moved here. And so anytime I do this, I get to, I get to like, I remember this kind of stuff because I'm weird. And so I get to this and and what has yet to cross my mind has, has been like what's next in the sense of we want to go somewhere else. And so uh, I think it's important that you know that, that I, I love you with all my heart. Um, it is a joy of my heart. I still actually, shockingly, I enjoy what I get to do and where I get to do it. And I just wanted to tell you that because sometimes you don't know that. I want to tell you even after nine years, I love being your pastor. I hope it's another 35,000 years. Uh, no one's lived that long yet, but I'm just going to go for it and see what happens there. And I think with enough bacon and donuts, I can make it happen. <laughs> so that's my, that's my theory, yeah. Um, now, now, the reason I tell you all this, that I, that I love you, because you may not think I do as we go through this sermon. <laughs> but I do love you. And, and I'm committed for the long haul on this. Uh, we love this area, we love you, and we love what God has in store. So I do want to talk to you, though, <laughs> about commitment. I want to talk to you about your version of commitment. If I made you actually actually come up with your own, like, your own actual idea, your own definition of commitment, I want you thinking about that right now. I want you thinking about specifically, if you had to, if you were in class and the teacher's like, hey, write down your definition of commitment, I wonder what you would write. And in fact, let, let, me, let me give you a scale. I, you know, I like scales. We, we use this at Easter. And I, if you even, if you're like, I don't like definitions, David, well, then come up with a number, okay, of not what it is, but where you might be. Don't tell anybody because the person next to you might disagree with your number. Uh, so, so I just want you to land on it. When we talk about commitment, when we talk about your version, my version, when we talk about commitment, with, with zero being like the worst person you never show up, you never fulfill what you said. You're, you're like, the, you betray everyone you've ever met, right? That, like, this is bad. Or 10, being like, you're pretty much elite. I mean, you've done well. You're super committed. I want you to just think about where you might be. And as you're thinking about what number you might be, I want to give you some examples that might help you understand this. There was a boyfriend and a girlfriend. Eventually, they got married, but the boyfriend decided, I know a great gift to give my girlfriend. He bought two tickets for he and her to... A Tina Turner concert. Now, some of you are like, that's odd. Well, Tina Turner happened to be her favorite. Now, if you, if you, if you, if you don't, I'm just telling you, if my wife liked Tina Turner, I love her enough to do this, but I would not enjoy it. Okay. I mean, just, I would, and so, so he buys tickets and, and she's excited. He's excited that she's excited. And it's that plan. So as they get closer, well, he happens to like NCAA basketball. What unfolds is because that tournament is unpredictable. His favorite team who has not been to the championship in over 20 years makes it to the championship the same night as Tina Turner. See, now some of you are like, David, I don't know what I do. And that helps you identify what number of commitment you're at. So, so he went to the concert. 
yay him. <laughs> now, some of you, might, you may not relate. Let me, let me tell you more of a, a meaningful story. There's these two friends. This is legit. There's these two friends, and one of them has a disorder that keeps him from being able to walk very well. So his friend came up with an idea. Here it is. Hop on my back. I'll take you to school. So he would, no joke, carry his friend to school. When school got out, there's a problem. He's got to get back. So he would wait for his friend, hop on my back, and would take him back home. If he had to switch classes, anything, he'd be like, hop on my back. He did this for eight years. I would call that, if, you're, if you and I are talking about what's commitment, right? by definition, what's commitment, I'd say that's a good friend, right? I mean, I think we can say, good job. Let's go even further into this. A guy named John Fox. If you're a history buff, you know about this guy. He was at war. We were at war, and the Germans were coming in in a way that we were losing. And in fact, he realized that he was going to lose all of his guys unless he did something. He told because he was in charge for them all to retreat. They retreated, and then he called an artillery strike on his exact position. And that exactly happened, and over 100 Germans were killed. We were able to overtake it and win that battle. I call that commitment, right? Read a recent story that even hit me, Richard Rescola. Uh, this guy, if you remember 9-11, you remember all of the details. In fact, most of us have it ingrained. Uh, this guy was a director of security for one of the buildings. Uh, twice a year, he would make them do evacuation drills. I would imagine when he would make them do it, they were probably screaming back at him. Going, what? why in the world are we doing evacuation drills? This is stupid. They probably thought he was nuts. Until... And the story goes that the first tower was hit. As soon as he realized that, he began to evacuate his building. And 2,500 people are credited to him getting them out of the building where he died himself. I'd call that commitment. So let's go back to the scale. You may not like your current answer. You may not enjoy where you've landed but it's a conversation you and I must have because I would say that in our world today, commitment has many definitions. So I'll ask you directly, how committed are you to who's most important to you? You may think you already have an answer. You may have already concluded it, landed on a number. You might feel good about yourself or there's a whole other cruise going, I'm horrible. I mean, but I think it's a question that you and I have to deal with. Who, who and how? When you talk about, or at least think about commitment, when you think about yourself, do not nudge other people during this sermon. It will create fights. This is for you. When you look at your own level of commitment, not what you want to be someday. See, commitment starts today at this moment. It's what you are, not what you hope to be. Commitment is something that's live. It's a verb. Uh, when you think about how committed you are, you may be actually thinking you're answering correctly, but you're not answering in the most healthy ways because, see, actually the Bible tells us who and how to be committed. And, and See, some of us, it's not that we aren't committed. We're just committed to the wrong people in the wrong order. 
It's the order that we've got a problem with. And we're like, I'm committed to so-and-so and such-and-such. Well, our problem is that what if that's not the healthiest way to go about it? So, so they question Jesus. Well, we, we talk about Jesus all the time, of course. And, and Jesus was questioning on this whole commitment thing. They use words like commandment, what, what are the rules? But in other words, what was pitched to him was like, hey, what's the most important thing in life? Who are we supposed to be and what are we supposed to be committed to? I'll show you how the conversation went down. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, of all the commandments... See, this is leading into, like, I'm about to ask you, like, what are we and who are we supposed to be the most committed to? Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must, here we go, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love God with everything you've got. And he went on. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So if you've never thought of it this way, you need to. If you want to know what's most important in life and what you and I ought to be committed to, what you and I should be thinking about processing, how we should be raising kids and in marriage and work and everything else that influences how we actually do things, you and I should be measuring this based on commitment. When I ask you, how committed are you to the most important things in your life? Do you realize that some of the things that we would list as the most important things are not what we're most committed to? We want them to be, but they aren't. And so we're going to do a two-week series. For those of you like, oh, good, that's only going to hurt for two weeks. All right, got it. So just a short series on how to love God and how to love people. Many of us have heard this as the greatest commandments, love God and love others, love God, love people, but how do we do this? So I'm gonna shelf the whole love people conversation for later. Let's talk about loving God. What does that look like? What does that require? What does that, if you and I were just to to look down upon what Jesus might've said about this, what did he say? I'll take you to a story, truly happened, it's awesome. It's in Matthew. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter. So for those of you who can be like, what, two names, what happened? Well, Jesus changed his name. Most of us know him as Peter and Andrew. Throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. Now what I want you to cue in on is what Jesus said to him first. Come follow me. Those words, follow me. Do you have those correctly defined? Do you know what Jesus means when he says, follow me? Some of us are like, I I don't know. I don't want to answer you yet, David. And I get that. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. But when Jesus goes to these guys and he says, follow me, you need to know. It is so critical that you know what that means. And I want to tell you. See, some of us get into different terminology. And we've heard terms like disciple, but we've also used terms like student. Student versus disciple. 
They're not the same thing. (laughs) Jesus was not saying to these guys who were fishing, by the way, I hope your fishing goes great this summer, as long as you don't fish during church. If you do that, I hope you don't catch a single thing. Totally, that was not in my notes. I'm now totally distracted. Okay, we're back. Good. Student versus disciple. So here, if you're a student, most of us have been at some time in our life. When you're a student, you're in theory just trying to achieve a grade, a diploma, a degree. You're, you're trying to get to something. It is a part of a ladder that you are climbing. It's a part of a staircase that you're trying to climb. Most of us do not volunteer to go to school at the beginning or at the end. Some of you do, but most of us are like, I'm trying to get something out of this. You want the achievement. You want a certain bit of knowledge so that you can get a certain job. Most of us look at it that way. That's what students do. Jesus didn't call these guys to be students. He called them to be disciples. Disciples. We're in it to be transformed. They wanted the education that they were going to get, like, from the rabbi, the rabbi being the teacher. The information they were getting from him, they wanted to not just be like, yeah, like, make us elite, make us this or that. No, they wanted that information to transform their very souls and minds. They were in it to become different. So when Jesus says to these guys, he's not calling them to be students, he's calling them to be disciples. He's calling them to be completely transformed. In summary, disciples were passionately devoted to the rabbi. This was not just a a singular moment where they would sit in a classroom. If you're not familiar with this, I'll describe it to you. A rabbi would become a rabbi at the age of 30 after studying for a long time and being appointed as that. Most rabbis had a waiting list of people who wanted to be their disciples. They'd become a rabbi. They're like, who am I going to pick? And a guy would show up and be like, no, you did horrible in math class. You didn't make it. And in fact, our disciples that you know as our disciples, the 12 disciples, most of them didn't make it. And they went back to fishing or the family trade. Most rabbis had a waiting list. What will mess with you is that you just read or I read to you that Jesus went and said, hey, will you guys come follow me? He just messed with culture. He went to them. There's a story. If you want to know what it meant to follow a rabbi, how committed it it was and how crazy it was, Jesus, this is in your Bible, said, hey, I want to teach you a lesson. So he took them on just a short little 30-mile walk. They went on this 30-mile walk. Can you imagine, like, where are we going? What's he going to do? Is there Kool-Aid at the end of this thing? What's... What create? No, but there was no complaining along the journey. We have no evidence of any complaining. They go 30 miles. Jesus teaches about a 10-minute lesson, and they're done. Some of you are like, Jesus, you should have preached longer. But they didn't complain because any, anything, even a 10-minute lesson, a disciple would, would be grateful for, would be like, thank you so much. I'm going to apply that to my life. I'm going to lean that in, press that in. That's going to be a part of me. I'm going to be transformed by this lesson. It wasn't give me more. It was I'm going to try to figure out how to apply this. Jesus was a rabbi, and he said, come follow me. To nerd you out a little bit further, <laughs> I got to tell you, Jesus went to go find his disciples. Well, 15 miles, 15 miles, so we've already talked about a 30-minute 
walk, 30 mile walk, just to you know, have a 10 minute lesson. But only 15 miles away from where Jesus grew up. You know, he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. 15 miles away was a place called Sithopolis. For those of you who like Star Wars, you like this place. For those of you who don't know anything about Star Wars, you're like, I don't even get that joke. But Sithopolis was a well-established city, 15 miles away from where Jesus grew up. This place was, was well put together, well organized, wealthy, running water, indoor plumbing. It was built well, good government. And in fact, there was a university there. It was known as a place of people who were well-educated, very intellectual, very smart, well-to-do, high-achieving people, right? So Jesus is going to go find disciples. And you're like, I bet he goes to Sethopolis. Not a single disciple. Not one. Jesus didn't go to Sethopolis and say, hey, I need the best and the brightest from the university here. Didn't even show up there and ask for disciples. Zero. Jesus went to another place, Bethsaida. Again, it's not critical that you remember the place, but let me tell you about it. The definition of this word is fishing town. Jesus is going to go get disciples. And if you don't know the story, these are going to be the disciples that get the gospel, the good news about Jesus out across the entire world. So can we just say this is critical who he chooses? And he goes to a fishing town, not the university town, not the well-to-do town. He goes to a fishing town that's very simple. It's almost like a very small rural town where a lot of the people there didn't get to go to university. But they were known for something all across the land. They were known for their passion for God. They weren't the most well-educated people. They knew a little bit about the, what you and I know as the Old Testament. They knew that, but they were a passionate group of people. They believed God was real, and they loved God and wanted to live for God. Jesus skips over the people who know everything and went to the people who would apply what they knew. And he picked five directly just from this town, Peter being one of them. So he calls out to them, hey, guys, come follow me. And you need to know what their reaction was. Show it to you. It's in the Bible. And they left their nets at once and followed him. I'm showing you just the small portion in the Bible because oftentimes when we read the story, we read over that part. And they left their nets at once and followed them. This is where I now lean into your life. This is where I had to prove to you that I actually do love you. Follow me requires leaving some things behind. And I wonder if there's some of us who are listening who are trying to follow God while leaving nothing behind. Follow me requires leaving something behind. But we live in a world, especially as Americans, where we're trying to do everything at once. And I'm going to tell you, if you're trying to carry everything you want while trying to follow Jesus, it won't work. You won't follow Jesus. 
because I'm a pastor, I have weird things like this. It's not because I fish. Those of you should know that by now. Um, I will fish if I just want the peace and quiet. It has nothing to do with the fish. If you, can, if you can picture with me, this is a fishing net. If you can picture with me these guys out fishing. They're minding their own business, literally. <laughs> and, and they're doing what they know to do. If you don't know what this represents, what, what, when, they, when they dropped their nets and followed them at once, you need to understand what they gave up. Yes, the immediate one is they gave up money. <laughs> They were fishing not for fun, okay? That, sure, it may have been fun for them, but that was not their main objective. Their main objective was to make money. <laughs> because if they made money, then they could live the way they wanted to live and the way they needed to. They could provide for their family and even do great things. They wanted to make money, so they were out fishing early. But that was not the only part of the reason they were fishing. We know historically that they probably were fishing because dad was a fisherman, Likely, grandpa was a fisherman. The way that culture worked, if you want to know, what am I going to do with my life? Either you were super smart and could become a rabbi or a part of government, or you did what your family did. And so some of them were fishing for money. Some of them were fishing because of family. You really want me to lean in on this? Some of us aren't doing what Jesus wants us to do because we're afraid of what our family thinks. We're afraid he'll take us away from being close to some of them. But let me tell you a third reason, a third big deal of when they dropped their nets. You understand they were doing fishing because they were good at it. They probably had come to the point that they might say, I think we've mastered this. We know, now some of you are like, well, how hard is it? Well, go fishing. You'll learn how hard it is. It's not always the easiest thing in the world. And, and there's even other stories in the Bible where it proved that they weren't as good as they thought they might have been, but they thought they were pretty good. Jesus says, hey, guys, come follow me. And they dropped their nets. If you want to visualize something, they dropped their fishing net, which was actually their security net. And many of us are trying to follow Jesus while maintaining some sort of a security net, but your security net has become more like a leash to your old life. Here's something about life you need to know. Everyone chooses to live for something. Everyone does. Every, every single person does. Lives for something. And if you're like me at all, there are seasons that you've lived for something that you never should have lived for. It had a name. And you, and you loved that person, cared about that person, or, or it was a job, and you thought it was everything to you, or it was a location, or it was, it was some sort of a dollar amount. But there's things that we live for. There's people that we live for. Every one of us chooses to live for something. Do you understand that that choice is always in front of you? God loves you and I so much that he leaves that choice in front of us forever. Our entire life that we breathe here on, on this earth, you and I daily choose who we're going to live for. Now, some of you are like, David, 
This whole conversation about follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, this, this was for the old group, the, the old disciples. This was not for us. Actually, that's not true. This was for you and I. If you haven't connected this to Jesus talking to you, I'll show you something. Jesus came and told his disciples, not students, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. That's you and us. That's, that's us. You and I have the same invitation from Jesus to be his disciples. Now, you need to know many of us as a group have decided to follow Jesus. We've accepted his forgiveness and his salvation, and we are going to heaven. But you need to know the conversation is bigger than that. He invited us into a relationship, not a religion. Not a title. He invited us into a relationship, and you have to make a decision regarding commitment. Now, there's results from this. When we direct our life, we see our results. I've shared this with you before. If you're like, you know what, David, I'm not going to follow Jesus. He's not going to be my rabbi. I'm not going to be his disciple. That's not how this is going to work. I'm actually going to go my way, my route. Okay. Well, when we direct our life, you're going to see your results, and that's all you're going to get. When God directs our life, we see his results. And that's where you choose who you live for and who you're committed to. You see, this is a relationship conversation. When I started off asking you about who are you most committed to? How are you committed to them? What's your version of commitment? I am talking to you about a relationship with God. And let me teach just a little bit about relationships. Healthy relationships require maturity. See, some of you are immediately thinking about your immature friends. You're like, oh, they need to see this sermon. But I think all of us can agree, a healthy relationship, a healthy one, not like an unhealthy, toxic one. <laughs> A healthy relationship requires maturity. To take this step further, maturity requires commitment. Now we're back to where we started. I think we all are old enough or have lived long enough to know that perhaps the breakdowns in commitment have been these immature moments. You don't have to raise your hand and you don't have to confess anything right now. But I think we all can agree that the moments that commitment breaks, it's an immature moment. It's when you decided to back away from commitment because of an immature moment. And sometimes we leave it there. The pastor concludes the sermon and says, you should love God more. Figure it out. <laughs> No, there's actually a way to mature your relationship with God. If you're at a place now that you're even interested in going, okay, okay, so the first commandment, the thing we're supposed to be committed to the most is our relationship with God, giving him everything we've got. But David, I, it's really tough for me to do right now. And I understand that. So how do you mature that? Not how do you get perfect, but how do you mature your relationship with God I'm going to steal some things from one of my coaches. He put together three things that must be a part of our lives. And I wholeheartedly agree with him. The first one is this. 
If you want to mature your relationship with God, you need spiritual intimacy in your daily life. You need experiences with God. I would call this a heart issue. If you're like, David, you got to be more specific. Okay. These are conversations with God. If you want to have a mature relationship with God, you have to talk to him. That'll help some of your marriages. You're like, we need to still talk to each other? Yes, yes. Face-to-face conversations. The same thing with God. You need spiritual intimacy. You need times where you do gather with your church and we sing to God, not because, well, for thousands of years the church is singing and singing and this is what we do and blah, blah, blah. No, it's intimate moments and experiences with God. It's where we tell God what we think about him and what he's done and celebrate him. Those are intimate moments. When you're praying, not just out of desperation, but just out of conversation. Those are intimate moments. And if you have stopped talking to God except for the 911 moments, you probably don't have all that intimate of a relationship with them. But that's a part of the maturing, but it's just one part required of three. The next one's biblical knowledge. Our current culture has walked away from this. I would tell you the Bible is the inerrant word of God, inspired by God. It is his word and authority. And you and I need to know it, the truth of God. Many of us are like, I want a relationship with God. I just don't know anything about him. My parents didn't teach me. My grandparents didn't teach me. Didn't grow up in church. I don't know anything about it. I get that and understand that. So it's time to start reading. It's time to invest in time in a group and with church and friends who can help you understand. The third is holy obedience. Surrender. His will, not your will. So let me put all three together. Now I know some of you, you're like, this is my first time in church and what? That's a lot of stuff. So let me help. I'm going to do a whole series on these three things. Not today, for those of you who are worried. But we as a church will do a whole series and look at each one individually and try to figure out how to make them a part of our life. But I wanted to put it in front of you. For those of you like, how do I mature my relationship with God? These, and for those of you going, I'm overwhelmed, David. That's a lot. That's going to require a lot of me. Hmm. Let me take you to a quote from Martin Luther. He once said, a religion that gives nothing costs nothing and suffers nothing is worth nothing. I'm not saying he got it wrong, but I'm saying I think Jesus would make an edit. He would change one word, a relationship that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. There are two Groups, for lack of better words, love God and love people, and you need to know there's an order to them. And some of us have gotten it out of order. So, what I'm about to share with you might cause you to choose another church. Some of you have chosen your children over God. 
Some of you have chosen your boyfriend or girlfriend over God. Some of you have chosen your job, your boss, and his or her demands over God. I'm going to tell you, there is a distinct order. Jesus did not mess up. Love God. Love people. If this doesn't make sense to you, one last thing. Everything in life is secondary to loving God. I just want this to stay up for a little bit. Because yes, part of it's my job as a pastor of a church to consistently remind my church, our church about this, but I want this to stick in your brain, maybe even go further to your heart. Everything in life is secondary to loving God. So let's make this scale more personal. On zero to 10, how committed are you to God? And if you don't like the answer, which many of us would be like, I'm not telling anybody this answer, I understand. If you don't like the answer, you wanna know the good news? Breathe in for a second. You're still breathing. So out of God's grace, he's let you hear this message and you continue to live, which means you can take a next step. If you're at zero, one's a great place. If you're at three, you can go to four. If you're at nine, go to 10. I think the most important thing is not necessarily the number you're at, but the next step that you take. So that's how I wanna pray for you. Because I hope that the Holy Spirit has been heard by you. So when I ask you, how committed are you to the most important people in your life? I hope now you ask yourself, how committed am I to God? Because I think most of us want to be committed. So if you would, would you bow your heads and close your eyes and I wanna pray for you and I wanna pray for your commitment. I wanna pray for what you're willing to do because I believe you need the power of God to get to where you need to go. So I wanna pray for you. God, I pray over everyone listening, wherever they are, even if they're fishing. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us in a way that we do not miss the message. God, let us know what it is. I think we've heard it. God, I pray that you will help us to own it. Help us to live it. God, I pray specifically that you'll help us to be disciples, not students. Help us to draw close to you to learn from you, to apply what we've learned and to be devoted above all things. God, I declare to you that this coming season when we serve our community like we do every year, we pray that your name is what people see and hear and feel. We pray that every hammer that is used every rake that is used, every paintbrush, God, may it all be done because we love you and we follow you. We've dropped our nets and we're all about you. 
We ask for nothing in return, God. We just tell you that we love you because you are amazing. And may many of us, if not all of us, declare to you sometime in our lives, if not today, that we choose to follow you. We love you, God, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.